Well, good morning. It's a joy to be with you guys after a year. It's a joy to be able to sing praises to our King, uh, to our Lord, to our God. It's a joy to see uh, many old faces and many new faces. Um, and to be here, to be able to go through, uh, hopefully, a overview, a flyby of the Book of Romans. Um, but because we're, we're entering a big task, let's open with a word of prayer and let's jump into God's word. God, we thank you for the gospel, for good news that sinners like us could be forgiven, that we could be blessed to have our iniquities forgiven only because of what you have done for us through your son, his perfect life, his death on our behalf, his victorious resurrection, and the offer of salvation simply through repentance and faith. And we thank you for revealing these truths of good news to us in your word. Thank you for the book of Romans as well. We pray that your spirit would help us as we go through this book, that you would change us for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to begin, I just want to say that um, I'm thankful for this church. I love you guys. We pray for you guys as we are on the East Coast, and we love you guys for many reasons. Uh, we're, we're thankful for your commitment to God's Word, to the authority, to the power, to the richness of God's Word. We're thankful for your commitment to that good news, to the gospel, and to good, sound, biblical doctrine. Now, so what I want to preach on, though, this summer in the three times I have with you guys is what does true doctrine inevitably do in our lives? Right? Because we know that sound doctrine right, isn't just academic. Right? It isn't just book-like theology that is meant to stay in our heads. Right? True sound doctrine changes us in radical ways. And to show you, I want to take sort of a bird's eye view at one of the most well-known, deeply theological and doctrinal books in the Bible, and that's the book of Romans. I want to just give you the main point up front of where we're headed, uh, and then we'll sort of unpack it. Let me show you in this book. Uh, but the main point up front is this. True sound doctrine fuels missions to the unreached. True sound doctrine, it fuels, it gives fire to missions to the unreached. Let me just show you in the book of Romans. We're going to jump around. If you're using one of the Bibles it provided in the pews, it's on page 939 is where Romans begins. But in Romans 1, 1 through 13, uh, if you sort of glance through it, uh, Paul sort of begins with a doctrinally rich explanation of the gospel. And he sort of talks about he, how he has owned it through faith. But then you jump to Romans 1, 14. After this rich explanation of the gospel on how he has owned it by faith, verse 14 jumps out, and Paul says this in Romans 1, 14, I am under obligation. I am indebted both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. As so Paul begins by after this gospel, he says, now that I've owned this gospel, I'm under obligation to do something, right? This ownership of the gospel produces something and it calls me to do something. And so David Platt commenting on this, this verse says this, he says, our ownership of the gospel creates obligation with the gospel. So because Paul owns the gospel, he owes the gospel, and he says, to all peoples, 
So simply put, true belief in sound doctrine fuels missions to all peoples, especially the unreached. And, and also, whenever we study the scripture and, and we look at sound doctrine, right, what sort of king? We always say context is king, right? Anytime you read scripture, context is king. So let's look at the bookends of this book to get a bigger picture context of the book of Romans. So Romans 1, 1 through 5, we read this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It's concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Who is it? Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And so with that in mind, turn with me to Romans 16, the end of the book, and see if you notice any similarities on these bookends for the context of the book. Romans 16, 25 to 27. Paul says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. There have been a few phrases that you've noticed. There's this concept of all nations. There's the concept of the obedience of faith. There's this concept of praise going to God and through Jesus Christ. And so John Piper helpfully summarizes this. He says, in the beginning and the end of this letter, Paul says that the gospel and his apostleship and by implication our ministry and our life has this great aim. That Jesus Christ will be seen as glorious, magnificent. Among who? Among just the church? Among a holy huddle of Christians? No, but among all the peoples of the world. But how? By the means of the obedience of Christians. By the means of the obedience of Christians, which flows from their faith in him. So the great aim is Jesus Christ will be seen as glorious, magnificent by all peoples, all the nations. But how is that going to happen? It's through the obedience of Christians that flows from their faith in him. And that's where the book ends for the context. And, and also another helpful thing for context is when we see Paul give explicit reason why he's writing. Right? He's telling us why he's writing. So in Romans 15, 18 through 24... So just look back a little bit. It's on the same page if you're there. Um, 18 through 24 says this. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. Verse 22, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you 
in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So Romans 15, 18, 24, we see that Paul's ambition is to preach the gospel where Christ has not already been named. But then he's, he quotes the Old Testament. He quotes Isaiah 52, 15, which speaks of the day when unreached peoples hear the gospel. There's people who have never been told of him, and they're going to see. There's people who have never heard, and they will understand. But then he tells in verse 22, and he says, hey, this is the reason. Unreached peoples was the reason why I had been hindered from visiting you thus far. You know, I've longed to visit you. And he writes, the purpose of writing this letter to the Romans is to be helped. Right? He's coming in passing to be helped to get to where? To go to Spain. Right? And he's trying to get to Spain because they also have never heard the gospel. So what does this mean? It means that when we look at the context of Romans and why Paul writes this book, Paul writes the book of Romans not primarily to give a theological treatise, right? to give us a book of sound doctrine. Right? The book of Romans, if you think about it in our modern-day language, it's essentially Paul's mission support letter. This book of Romans is Paul's mission support letter to go to unreached people. And I pray that once we understand context, it changes the way we read and we teach Romans and all the rich theology that you will learn in this church and throughout your lives. Because in the book of Romans and throughout Scripture, it is clear that true, sound doctrine is designed to fuel missions to the unreached. So what does that mean? If that's what sound doctrine is designed to do, it means that we must give sacrificially and we must go willingly to bring the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to unreached peoples and places. Now to start off, you might have this question. I says, hey, Kevin, I mean, that was Paul's day, right? When he was writing this letter. And this was close to 2,000 years ago. I mean, are there really people still today in our world who have never heard the gospel? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because if you look online, do the research, there are actually about 3.11 billion people. 3.11 billion people, that is 42.2% of the world's population, spanning over 6,700 6, people groups, distinct ethnic groups who are now considered unreached with the gospel. So needless to say, that's a lot. But even as you hear that, right, numbers like that can often feel a little distant. Uh, it's somewhat a little bit cold. I mean, how do you even process that? How do you even process 3 billion people? 4 out of 10 people are unreached in the world's population. So what I want to do is take a little step back. Let's think for a moment that you are in their shoes. Right, so think for a moment. You are unreached. You are one person. You are one family that is unreached. So put yourself in the shoes, and let's ask the question, what does that mean? What does it mean to be unreached? And so if you're in their shoes and you're an unreached person, you're an unreached family, it means this. You do not currently have access to the gospel. So you do not have anybody around you to tell you what the gospel is. Now, there's a common objection that I often hear. It's like, hey, why do you talk so much and emphasize unreached peoples? 
I mean, Kevin, I have non-Christian friends. I have non-Christian coworkers. I have non-Christian classmates. I have non-Christian neighbors who are unreached. And to that response, I want to make it clear. People in your office, listen, they're not unreached. People in your school, they're not unreached. This Los Angeles area is not an unreached area. It is vastly unchurched, that's true. It is vastly anti-Christian, that is true. But it is not unreached. Now, how do you know? Because you work with them. You go to school with them. You live next to them. Your church is here. You are their access. They know Christians who know the truth about Jesus Christ. So when we're talking about unreached peoples, we're talking about people who do not have any access to the gospel, people who do not know any Christians, people who have no church they can drive by or walk by if they have questions about the gospel. So if you put yourself in their shoes, right, you're one person, you're one family who's unreached, what does that mean? It means that unless something changes, you'll be born, you will live, and you will die. Have you never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? All right, so all that glorious truth of Psalm 32 that we read, blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven. You've never heard that. You will be born, you will live and die. Having never heard that blessing that could be yours. All the songs that we sang, you will be born, you will live, and you will die. Having never heard any of those truths. So feel this. Put yourselves in those shoes. If you are unreached, you'll be born and live and die without ever hearing the gospel if you're in those shoes. And so a pertinent question is this, right? What happens then? What happens then when you die if you've never heard the gospel? I mean, do you go to hell forever? I mean, do you spend all of eternity in hell when you've never even heard that you can go to heaven? I mean, you didn't reject the gospel. You never had the opportunity to hear the gospel. I mean, do you really go to hell forever? And that's a huge question Paul's answering all throughout his mission support letter in this book of Romans. And he begins with it. And the answer Paul gives in Romans is that if you are unreached, it means four things, at least biblically. Four things. So let's go back to the beginning in Romans chapter 1. And he's trying to answer this question in the beginning of his mission support letter. It means four things, biblically, if you're unreached. First, you have knowledge of God. You have knowledge of God. Romans 1, 19 through 20. Paul is clear, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, So they are without excuse. So right in the beginning of his mission support, Paul is clear, all people in all of creation have knowledge of God. We are all without excuse. So every person in the world has knowledge of God because he has made his character known to us through creation. A few other verses, Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Psalm 147, praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. He determines the number of our stars. He gives to all of them their names. Isaiah 40, 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, the stars. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. 
by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So among the billions of stars in the galaxy, our God brings each of them out one by one and he calls each of them by name. And because of his power, not even one is missing. And so Psalm 148, 1 through 5, praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights, praise him all his angels, praise him all the hosts, praise him sun and moon, praise him all you shining stars, let them praise the name of the Lord, why? For he simply commanded and they were created. So God reveals his glorious character, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature in the stars and in the rest of creation. I mean, time doesn't permit an extended meditation on how glorious God's perfect creation is. Right? How, how the sun is a perfect distance from the earth. If the sun were any closer or further, we would either burn to death or freeze to death. How even the moon is a perfect distance from the earth designed by God. So if the moon was closer, the tides would be too big and would destroy life. And if the moon was further, the tides would be too small and the water would stagnate and life itself would perish as well. How the earth is tilted at a perfect 23-degree tilt with a 24-hour rotation designed for both comfort and economy. The tilt causes seasons with associated fluctuations of weather, producing a maximum amount of farmable land and seasons. And the rotation of the earth helps to uniformly heat its surface and cause winds and ocean currents that help generate and sustain life. All right, so all people, including unreached peoples, have knowledge of God through God's creation. That's the first biblical truth Paul makes clear. You have knowledge of God if you're unreached. But then second biblical truth, you have rejected God and the knowledge of God. Let's keep reading. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. In these verses we see the sinful nature of all men, right? All people have turned aside from God and worshipped other things instead of God. I mean, it may look different in different places. So maybe in West Africa, they're practicing voodoo. Maybe in India, they're offering incense every day with hundreds and hundreds of gods crafted with their own hands. Maybe in Saudi Arabia, it's five times a day, the rote practice of bowing down to a false god in supposed prayer. Or maybe in Nepal, it's worshiping a Buddha they've created and have given their first son as an offering to the monastery. Or in China, maybe they've rejected the idea of God altogether with atheism. Or in America, we have a huge variety of ways Americans have rejected God and worshipped idols, right? You could probably think of many, but many worship money, materialism, things. Many worship health, right? We see the fad of gyms and diets and exercise, and even the focus of our prayers is often there. I mean, false gods have infiltrated many churches with the false health and wealth gospel, Many others worship sexuality and pleasure. Others worship comfort. Many others worship themselves or other images, right, or ideals. And so this is the sinful nature of all men, all people. Even though we all have knowledge of God, we all have rejected God. 
We all have exchanged the glory of God and worshiped other things instead of God. And as a result, the third biblical truth is this. You stand condemned before God. You stand condemned before God. That's the whole argument Paul is building from Romans 1.18 all the way through 3.20. All mankind stands condemned before God. So chapter 1, creation and our rejection of the creator condemns us. In chapter 2, our conscience and our rebellion against what you know is right condemns you. Romans 2, 12-16, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are large to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Right? So conscience and our rebellion against what even what we know is right condemns us. And it culminates all the way in chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Right? Just even a few of those verses in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He keeps going through verse 20. So all humanity is indicted. All humanity is guilty. All humanity is sinful by nature and by action. No wonder Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And in this section, Romans 1.18, I didn't read it, but look at verse 18. 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed. The wrath, the anger, the justice of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So all these chapters, Paul is explaining why. Why is it that the wrath of God justly should be poured out on all of humanity? Because all are sinners who stand condemned before God, deserving of eternal death and suffering in hell. My brothers and sisters, this is so important because as Paul writes his missionary support letter, to, to stir up the hearts of God's people for missions to the unreached, Paul clearly answers one common objection. And you might have heard it, or maybe you think of yourself, but what happens? What happens to the innocent person in Africa? What happens to the innocent person in Asia or the innocent person in a remote mountain village who dies never hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do they go to heaven or do they go to hell for eternity? And that person, Paul says, without question, goes to heaven. But the problem is, there is no innocent person. There's no innocent person in Africa. There's no innocent person in Asia. There's no innocent person in a remote mountain village. There's no innocent person here. Paul makes it crystal clear in his mission support that there are no innocent people in all the world. So the default is not heaven for anybody. The default is hell because we all know God. We all have rejected God. And therefore, we all are sinners who stand condemned before God. 
having personally offended God with our sin. Now, brothers and sisters, I understand the, the emotional pull, right? The emotional pull in all of our hearts, right? We, we want to say, surely, surely if someone has never heard the gospel, I'm sure that God will pull them into heaven, right? And I, I, I also feel the emotional pull to want to say this. But listen, if we say this, let's think about this. If we say this, what is the worst thing? What is the worst thing we can do for unreached peoples and places? Is to go share the gospel with them, right? And so it's like unreached peoples FaceTiming you in on this big screen maybe and say, First Baptist Church of High Santa Heights, why did you give sacrificially? Why did you go willingly to unreached peoples? Because before you got here, we, we all, our entire people group was going to go to heaven. But now that you're here, giving us access to the gospel of Jesus Christ, many might now go to hell. And so, beloved, feel the weight of this reality then. Right? Unreached peoples, unreached peoples like all peoples, one, have knowledge of God, two, have rejected God, and therefore, three, stand condemned before God. But the difference the difference between unreached peoples and all other peoples, including this very unchurched Los Angeles area, the difference is this weighty, sobering, fourth biblical truth. You have never heard. You have never heard the good news of God. You never heard the good news of how you can be saved by God. So nobody has ever told you that God loves you so much that he sent his son to die on a cross for your sins. And you currently don't even know one Christian who can tell you that gospel. And most likely you don't have a church you can drive by to hear that gospel. And you most likely don't even have the Bible in your language fully translated to read the gospel. You have never heard the good news about Jesus Christ, and you currently don't have access to hear it. So no access to hear that the story doesn't end with Romans 3.20. Right? With bad news, you've never heard the beginning of verse 21, which I've looked at a lot of translations. It's the same two words. What are they? Romans 3.20 ends with bad news, but verse 21 begins, I believe, every translation with the same two words. What is it? But... Now, right, he has this argument from Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed against all of humanity, and here's why. He's building it all the way up to Romans 3.20, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith, faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. 
Right? He begins with a but now, and he talks about Jesus Christ's perfect, righteous life, where God, his goodness, has poured out the wrath due sinners on his son in our place as a substitute for us. And multiple times in these verses that it's only through faith, faith alone in Christ alone. It's not through any works that we do, which is the basis of all other world religions and all other worldviews. No, but it's faith alone. Any and all sinners can be forgiven of their sins and reconciled to God forever where he justifies us. That means he just simply declares that we are just, we're forgiven, all because of faith. Friends, this is good news, right? I mean, this is the greatest news in all the world. So, friend, if you're here and you are not yet a Christian, I know that if you pull out your phone and you look on the Internet, there's a lot of news, right? There's news being produced over and over again. But what I want to tell you is that this news that God has revealed in the Bible will be the greatest news you will ever hear. Past, present, and future, this is the greatest news in all the world that you as a sinner can be forgiven today if you simply turn from your sins and turn to Jesus Christ by faith alone. I'm sure the friend who brought you or anyone else here will be happy to talk more about it with you. But beloved Christian brothers and sisters, I am regularly convicted by this, by this quote from Carl Henry. He says this, the gospel, right, this greatest news in all the world, is only good news if it gets there in time. The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. So once again, if we are unreached, right, we put ourselves in their shoes. We're one family, one person who's unreached, right? We have knowledge of God. We've rejected God. We stand condemned before God, guilty in sin, and nobody has ever told us the but now of how we can be saved from that combination of death that we're due. And this is their shoes. So at this moment, let's pause for a second, though. Let's, let's praise God, though, that we're not in those shoes. And we need to pause and say, God, thank you. Let's praise God that we're not in those shoes. Let's praise God that we have heard the gospel. Let's praise God that we're not in the dark on this. And listen, it's not because of anything in us, right? It's not because we're any better than other people. Yet God in his undeserved kindness has allowed us to live in a place where we've heard the gospel and he's changed our hearts to then receive it by faith. And how did this happen? Somebody told us the gospel. Somebody who owned this gospel felt the grace-empowered gospel obligation to then share that gospel with us. So in our shoes now, now that we, for those of us who are God's people, now that we have also owned this gospel by grace alone through faith alone, I mean, isn't there now a, a grace-fueled, gospel-empowered obligation on us? Beloved, we cannot just go on with our lives, with business as usual. Because everything we have learned about the gospel from God's word, right, all the sound doctrine that is regularly taught in this church is not meant to just fill our heads, right? Or everything I've just shared isn't just to help us debate or explain academically the doctrine of total depravity, that man is totally depraved, sinful in, by nature and by action. No, 
all the sound doctrine we learn is meant to fuel missions to the unreached. And so the main call from this point is that we must give sacrificially. We must go willingly to bring this gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to unreached peoples and places. And in the rest of the book of Romans, all the rich theology, all the sound doctrine Paul writes is meant to do that. It's meant to fuel us to accomplish that overarching contextual purpose. And there's at least four reasons throughout this book of Romans that we're going to look at next week and in August when I come back to just unpack more with an overview of four reasons that Paul gives of sound doctrine that is meant to fuel missions to the unreached, of why we must give sacrificially, why we must go willingly to the unreached peoples and places. And let me just give you a brief overview where we're headed. It's just going to be the bullet points of the next few weeks. There's four reasons. First is their plight. Because unreached people's knowledge of God is only enough to damn them to hell. First reason, their plight. Second reason is the gospel's power. The gospel's power. Because the gospel of God is powerful enough to save them for heaven. Then the third one we're going to look at is God's plan. Their plight, the gospel's power, and God's plan. Because the plan of God includes the sacrifices of his people. And the fourth and last one is Jesus' praise. Jesus Christ's praise. Because the Son of God, we looked at it in Romans 1 and 16, right? The Son of God deserves the praises of all peoples. This is the ultimate reason why we must give sacrificially and go willing. Because Jesus Christ deserves the praises of all peoples. And so that's where we're headed this summer as we look at an overview of Romans. But to close our time for today, I want to remind you, of our main point, the main call, and just do some final reflections. At the main point, why we saw it contextually, is that the main point is that true sound doctrine, it fuels missions to the unreached. And so the main call is upon us that we must give sacrificially, we must go willingly to bring the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to unreached peoples and places. Once again, Christian brothers and sisters, we cannot just go on with our lives with business as usual. We must not live most of our lives living for this temporary passing world. While almost half, 42.2% of the rest of the world is being born and they're living and they're dying, condemned to eternal hell with no access to this gospel that can save them for God. And let's think about why were we born where we were born. I mean, why, why were we not born in the mountains of Nepal? Why were we not born in a village in Africa? Why were we not born in a war zone in the Middle East? I don't have a good answer. I only God knows that. I don't know why we were born where we were born. The Bible is clear on this. We have received good news for a purpose and for a reason. We've received this. God placed this in a place where we have access to the gospel. We've received this gospel for a reason and is the glory of his name, the glory of God spread to the ends of the earth. So we cannot just go on with our lives with business as usual, just slapping a Christian label on some things, doing some Christ-like things here and there. But yet the bulk of our lives, the bulk of our actions, the bulk of our decisions are made because of the things of this world. 
So let me just ask a few reflection questions. Christian brothers and sisters, are you making most of the decisions in your life based upon fear or faith? Maybe fear of losing something, fear of other people's disapproval, or just fear of discomfort. Is it because of fear that you're making decisions or because of faith in him? Are you making most of the decisions in your life based on safety and security for you and your family? Or are you making decisions because of the salvation of all nations? Where you know Romans 8, that there's no condemnation, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. You have full safety, full security already in Christ. And so we should give and go. Are you making most of the decisions in your life based upon pursuing comfort? Or is it about proclaiming Christ? Are you making most of the decisions in your life based on just accumulating things, accumulating your savings, or advancing the kingdom? Are you making most of the decisions in your life based upon the size of your salary that you can get, the stability of the job that you can have, or about spreading the Savior to all peoples? Now, even as I ask these questions, I want to make one thing clear. I am not saying this. I am not saying, I am not saying that certain professions are bad. I'm not saying that certain jobs or neighborhoods or houses are intrinsically bad. But what I want to simply do with these questions is to simply ask why. Why are we making each of the decisions in our lives? Why are we making each of the choices in our lives? I mean, what is driving our heart? What is driving our life? And I'm praying that the glory of the gospel, right, of Jesus Christ willingly coming to this earth, of Jesus Christ giving up the safety and security of being at the Father's side, of giving up the comforts of heaven and taking on a human body and facing rejection, being scorned and having his body beaten and bruised and pierced and crushed. Why? To save us personally and to save people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people group, that this truth of what Jesus Christ has done in the gospel, that this would change us forever, where every decision that we make in life has its purpose and the aim that the fame of Jesus Christ among all the nations. Because of the gospel, we must give sacrificially and we must go willingly to get the gospel to those who have never heard it. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you. God, we thank you that we have heard the gospel. That you have, by your grace, showed us that we are sinful people who have rebelled against you, sinful people who deserve your eternal wrath. But God, thank you that you have moved people to open their mouth to share Christ with us, to tell us that we can be forgiven, we can be adopted as your children, we can be saved, not because of anything we do, but solely by faith alone in Christ alone. Thank you, God, for helping us own this gospel. And so, God, we pray that all of us here who have owned this gospel, that you would 
impress upon our hearts a grace-fueled, gospel-empowered obligation. Just feeling this push, this fuel, this drive where we must give sacrificially and consider going willingly to bring your gospel to those who have never heard it. And God, we ask that as we do so, through the obedience of our faith, that you and your kindness would call many more people to yourself, that you would bring worshipers to praise your glorious name so that everything would be for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.